Welcome to Pollinators and Power. I'm Terry Oxford, and I'm a pollinator advocate in San Francisco, California. Today, I'm interviewing Jenny Cullinan, who lives in the Cape in South Africa, the richest and most diverse floral kingdom in the world. Six years ago, she and her partner, Karen Steenberg, gave up their jobs and started UJUBE, their wild bee research team. Their research is primarily based in Table Mountain National Park, a World Heritage Site, and various other biomes. Their research is self-funded and is totally focused on the ecology of wild bees. It's a long and thoughtful study of the bees' home, behavior, and incorporating all the living world around them and the consequences of our actions in it. Jenny is also an artist, using her art to raise awareness about bees and native pollinators. I met Jenny and Karen in the Netherlands and found kindred activist spirits who recognize the importance of native pollinators over the industrial beekeeping system. Hi, Jenny. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, why don't you just launch in and just tell me, tell us what you've been working on and what your passion is and what your what your deal is about pollinators and bees, native bees in South Africa. Hello, Terry. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity and lovely to be speaking to you. What I've been doing for the past six years is studying um, bees in the wild in South Africa. So working in a pristine World Heritage Site, and now we've extended our research sites to a whole lot of other biomes within the Western Cape region of South Africa. So it's the smallest, most diverse, and richest floral kingdom in the world. And it's a wonderful place to work. Um, it has a unique um, indigenous honeybee, um, Apis mellifera carpensis, and then a whole lot um, of solitary bees. We have a very, very... Um, broad um, base of solitary bees. So we, we study the ecology of bees, um, how bees live with one another and with the environment and how everything interacts with one another and is interconnected. So it's a wonderful place to work. That's great. And I've seen some of the pictures that you've sent me and um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to be able to post some of those. Uh, they're the most extraordinary insects uh, I've ever seen. They're beautiful photographs. Um, the photographs that I sent you are just a glimpse into our world. Of course, we have so many different kinds of flowers. So we have an extraordinary amount of specialist pollinators for them. And um, the evolution of flowers and plants, I mean, flowers and, and bees is quite an extraordinary relationship to be studying. And then also you're an artist. I actually bought one of your pieces uh, when I met you in the Netherlands and I love it. It's so simple and gorgeous, just beautiful. Really a lovely rendition of a, of a bee, of a native bee. I don't know which one it is, but it's cute and fuzzy. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. Um, yes, I am a, a, an artist. So what's really useful is I've been trained to look so um, I use those skills every day whilst researching bees. I love that. I love that. You know what? I found that sometimes I'll be looking at um, a tree because that's what my that's what my bees forage on here in the city, and I won't see anything for a full minute, and then I always remember, ah, oh, just breathe, relax your gaze, 
just look. And then all of a sudden I'll see it's just hugely alive with all sorts of different bees and, um, and pollinators. So it's funny how you say you've been trained to look. I love that. It's interesting what you say, because um, when we first started researching um, the honeybees in particular, um, we thought we knew where they would choose to live. So we thought, ah, oh, there's an interesting cavity in those rocks over there. We would go across and have a look and there would be no bees. And so we really thought that we knew where they would choose to live. And we had to give up all of that um, supposed knowledge that we had and really follow them. So we had to train ourselves how to see bees flying and then we would have to follow them back to their, their nest sites. And we had to unlearn everything we knew about bees to come um, to them in a clear way and to be able to really understand them. So it's been a, an incredibly interesting journey, thinking that one knows something and imposing your understanding of something onto the natural world, and they, it's completely wrong. So we had to undo all sorts of learning to um, have a glimpse into their world. So where does your, what is your background? Where did you research before you actually started to research? Where did you go to school? My background is art, and so we have, um, there are two of us, Karen Sternberg and myself, that form Uchibi, and we've been trained by a retired entomologist um, who has trained us how to um, collect data and how to put it all together, and we have a special permit. We work with the South African National Parks um, Scientific Bureau, and this allows us to have a particular permit which allows us to go anywhere in the World Heritage Site, which is our primary research site, Table Mountain National Park. For the past six years, um, we have been researching in this way. So we've learned a huge amount in terms of how to collect data, how to put it all together. And, um, and of course, we've brought our own um, dimension to the scientific world. And that is, for me, that would be storytelling. I'm an artist and and the way that I see um, things and the way that I capture information through film and through photography and to be able to speak about it in a fluent manner that is accessible to most people allows us to um, tell the bee conservation story um, to a broader audience. So normally scientific information is captured and kept very much to the scientific um, community. We've been able to negotiate with um, the Scientific um, Bureau of the South African National Parks to actually have a Facebook page and to engage more openly and broadly with, with the community, um, which has been incredibly positive because it tells the true story of wild bees. Well, it's interesting too, because when I met you in the Netherlands, I was struck by your activism and how powerful that you are as a speaker and just as an individual. And I know it's not about, I know it's not about you, it's about the bees, but you are a great, um, you're a strong messenger and a good carrier of the message that biodiversity is really the only message that counts right now. And I remember we were discussing it, we were at a beekeeping conference, and we were like, you and I were both thinking and saying it's not about honeybees anymore. It's about biodiversity. Honeybees can survive anywhere because they're brought in in a box. But biodiversity and um, all the different species that need to exist in a healthy environment, 
that's the true message right now. And uh, I, I look at you and I think you're, you're fortunate to be able to be in that kind of a space and just working with these species that need so much of our help and our protection. So let me ask you, how close is your preserve to industrial agriculture? Well, we have many um, regions in which we're working. Um, so the, the primary reserve, that's um, Table Mountain National Park, um, Cape Point um, section of it, is on a peninsula. So it's right on the edge of, um, it has the ocean around it, the Atlantic Ocean that surrounds it. Um, there are some farms, but they're small scale, so not industrial. There is a, a large um, ostrich farm, um, but it doesn't have any impact on the reserve. There are beekeepers on the border of the reserve, and so that does have an impact on, on the, the wild colonies in the reserve. So that has to be um, looked at very carefully in the future. But in terms of other reserves that we're working in, I'm currently in a semi-desert um, region of, of South Africa called the Clay and Karoo. And the World Heritage Sites reserves are completely surrounded by agriculture, um, not necessarily intensive agriculture on all the border sides, but certainly um, there is a lot of intensive agriculture here too. So we are currently engaging with that and seeing how we can um, assist with um, kind of like a buffer zone for the, the World Heritage Sites so that we don't have our wildlife um, in small ghettos. That's a great way to put it putting the wildlife in the ghettos and the honeybees get the prime real estate. And that's what's happening here in California. It's dismaying to me. And you actually alerted this to me. And then I looked into it and found, oh my God, it's been happening here for a long time. So beekeepers will park their beehives with millions and millions and millions of honeybees next to a native area. And the reason that this is wrong is because, you know, I think that beekeepers should take responsibility for their animals and make sure that there is uh, good forage for them instead of just industrial monoculture, which is chemically infused and basically a death zone. Um, so, you know, I just wish that the beekeepers would take care of, of their animals in a different way as opposed to depleting someone else's resources. I totally agree with you, Terry, that um, if you have any animal in your care, you should feed it and you shouldn't expect anybody else to feed it. Um, and this, this for me is a, is a huge concern. Um, we have, of course, indigenous honeybees. So our honeybees live um, very, very much um, when they're in a natural environment in harmony with all the other pollinators. And that's because nature has a particular way of um, making sure that there isn't a proliferation of honeybees in the wild, and that's through fire. Um, our regions are fire-prone. Um, the ecology has fire that runs through it, say, every 20 years, 15, 20 years, and that limits the nest sites for the honeybees. So we have about one colony per square kilometer, and that means that's a wonderful balance. When you bring 25 hives and you put it onto the border of a, of a reserve, you've just brought in a million pollinators that need to feed. And so we will have 
what I term overgrazing. And we know what happens when there's overgrazing. There's not enough food for others. And so that's, that's not on. If you are going to keep an animal in a, in a confined manner under your care, you need to be able to feed it and um, not expect any wild space to feed it because that wild space is, has already got other creatures living there. So that's the big um, question that needs to be asked of the beekeeping associations. If you're going to breed honeybees, make sure that you have enough forage for each hive and that you can take care of your own animals and not feed them, number one, um, sugar water or anything synthetic. You should be feeding them high-quality food. Right, right. And beekeepers will will do that. They'll feed their bees sugar water or just plain white sugar. They just, uh, like, sugar water and sugar is just not food for any, it's not food for anything at all. And so, um, you know, I just think that that's an easy way out. And and the bottom line is this is this is history. The way that beekeepers are keeping their bees and and what is now happening in South Africa too with the migratory beekeeping system growing. The whole history of that is wrong. It, it, it shouldn't be this way. We shouldn't have denuded and chemically dead environments that nothing can survive. You know, instead, they're just doing the easy thing and parking their hives on somebody else's land and stealing from the natives. I, I totally agree with you, Terry, that that's the way that we um, produce food is, is fundamentally wrong. Um, who on earth came up with the idea that we should grow food with poison? I don't want to eat food that is poisonous, and I don't want any wildlife exposed to poison. And so we have a really, really important fight at the moment, which is to stop that. Um, it's it's crucial that, that all of us speak up against that because that toxicity, those poisons are going into groundwater, going into the ocean, poisoning fish. Um, it's not just the insects that are dying. Wait until we really take a good look at the ocean as well. Everything is dying. It's not a sustainable um, thing to be doing, and it's it's a crazy, crazy, crazy idea. Um, and I, I don't want to eat poisonous food. And so we shouldn't impose poison on any other species, whether it be plant or animal, insect or fish. It, it's, it's wrong. It just is wrong. So we now have to find our way back to what was conventional farming. Conventional farming was, in the old days, you farmed with your native species, you farmed, um, and you didn't use chemicals. That terminology has changed to organic or organic has been hijacked and actually we should just claim back that actually the original way of farming conventional farming had no poison yeah and i think it's it's true you know i'm always telling people what's on your plate matters that if you are not eating chemical free food then you've killed something up orchard or downstream and it really does matter and you know and it's funny what you said really triggered something about our food system and about it being ethical. People like to trust. We just like to turn off our brains at some point and just trust. It's easier for us. Otherwise, we kind of get sick. We get too much cortisol and stress running through our bodies. So we like to trust. And the the sad message is, is that you can't trust your food because a lot of the stuff that's been grown and marketed 
in uh, through conventional farming is not it's not subsist subsistence crops. It's specialty crops or cash crops, easy stuff for them to ship all around the world. So instead of creating farming that is sustainable locally and able to be shipped locally, these companies have have specialized in just a few crops that do the most damage. So my favorite um, bad, bad boys are citrus and almonds. Almonds are one of the most depleting crops, as are citrus. And because they're grown in such huge monoculture operations, they require chemicals that then deplete the soil, depletes all the native pollinators, requires migratory beekeepers to come in, and then those beekeepers have to park their beehives next to pristine land because they know bees need organic food. So they're always searching for organic because the monoculture has taken up uh, and taken up a lot of land and agricultural land. And so these specialty cash crops, they don't, they're not subsistence. You don't need an almond to survive. And so, you know, they're just depleting uh, degenerative crops. They're not regenerative in any way. And I hope, I hope that South Africa is, is looking at the mistakes of the West in the Northern Hemisphere and what we've done wrong in our agricultural practices. And I hope that, that there's voices there that are joining yours to uh, keep out monoculture crops and specialty cash crops. Is that happening or is Bayer and the bake and Bayer and the beekeepers are they joining forces? Unfortunately, um, it looks like South Africa. Well, South Africa has massive um, export markets um, with all kinds of cash crops, as you call them. Um, it's it's unfortunate that South Africa doesn't look to feed her own people before she exports. So we have huge industrial farms in South Africa, and of course. It is monoculture, and of course, we have a huge citrus industry here, and uh, many, many singular monocrop um, environments, which are just deserts for for pollinators. And um, yeah, unfortunately, the the bee associations um, of South Africa have signed the Bayer Pollination Charter, and which means that they collude with the toxic chemical system, and. That is a, a fundamental error. And once again, one has to say to beekeepers that are colluding with that system that really you're not looking after your animals. If you're going to allow them to be exposed to plants that are really filled with poison, you're going to have a very sick um, colony at some point and that's going to be weakened and it's, it's going to be susceptible to different diseases. And so the whole cycle is, is fundamentally wrong. And yet I'm working in an area at the moment which is an incredibly pristine area, and I'm working in two valleys. Um, I'm doing two big studies here, um, looking at the baseline information about all the different bee species in the semi-desert area, um, which has a, it's the richest plant um, semi-desert in the, in the world, um, and so it's an interesting environment to work in. But I'm also looking at small-scale organic farms in, in this region that have no um, 
pollination units coming in at all. There are wild honeybee colonies that migrate down to the farms when, when there is enough for extra food. They come out of the mountains and they migrate down to the farms and you have absolutely and the, this incredible diverse in fact most of the pollination that's happening on the farms is is by solitary and semi-social bees and it's wonderful to see um the the diversity is extraordinary and there are almonds and there are citrus and they are planted um as as a whole ecosystem not as a mono system so it's 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 you can do these things but we need to change the scale of them and we need to to be a, the, the farming needs to change the scale not to these huge environments and we need to have biodiversity leading us on this planet because that is the rule of 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 thriving on our planet is biodiversity it's not mono um that's what we've done, and we've also industri industrialized our bees in, in, that's, in that thinking as well. And it means we, we're running counterflow to, to what is, is actually real and uh, sustainable on our planet. Not just sustainable, but we will thrive if we see ourselves as a biodiverse, uh, part of that biodiverse system, and, and that we are interconnected to everything. So at the moment, we're busy killing um, the planet and ourselves. We just need to, to, like you're doing, which I think is fantastic, is, is just continually pointing out how the system works and how wrong it is and to expose more and more people to that um, toxic system and unethical system and so that people can make better choices for themselves and for the world around them because it's everybody has the power to to change this through buying and supporting um, ethically grown food. And I think that that's crucial, absolutely crucial, if we're going to survive as a species. And the bottom line is, is that most of the world's food that is um, grown Almost 40% of it is thrown away in this country. It's, it's, it's a crime. It's an outrage. It's totally correct in terms of waste. And it's very, very interesting because um, nature hates waste. Um, you don't see waste in, in, in natural in ecosystems. And if one looks at, at the wild honeybees in, in South Africa, the ones that we're studying, is that there's no such thing as surplus honey. They only make what the colony needs. So if there's a lot of flowers, every day the scouts go out and they, they assess what is coming into flower. They come back, they tell the house bees, the house bees clean up an area of comb, usher the queen into that area. She lays according to what comb has been cleaned up for her to, to lay in. And when those young bees hatch, they are in sync with what is flowering. And in... in South Africa, our bees don't hibernate, so they do what is called follow flow, which is to follow the flow of the flowers around them. So they only make the amount of honey that is required for their colony, and their colony size is determined by the cavity size that they're choosing, and they don't choose big cavity sizes. So we have smaller um, cavity sizes, and of course, they have an ability to assess what other cavities are available if there is a new colony, a reproductive colony produced. So they, they are constantly aware of the environment and the change of flowers 
and also the other pollinators and the other creatures that feed on flowers. So they will not reproduce and put out another colony that will be in competition to themselves if there isn't enough food. So it's an incredibly sophisticated system and we should learn from that as a human species. If one looks, it's always difficult to quote ages of things, but Professor Jürgen Tauth says that um, honeybees are 80 million years old. So, okay, let's take that number. If they're 80 million years old, they have a lot of wisdom. And they have evolved to understand that greed is not going to allow for their, their survival. And it's something we haven't learned as a species yet. And we really, really, really need to grasp that one pretty quickly. Yeah. And I do think that conscious evolution could happen. I know it's happened with so many people I talk to. I see it all the time. I see a light go on. I know I've pollinated somebody and they've understood that things are not the way that they thought. So I think that an evolution is absolutely necessary and and could come. And it's got to be about including other species because we are a monoculture species and um, we like to think about ourselves only and including all the other species of the planets of the planet is is the number one way to our survival to being inclusive of everything and in inviting uh, biodiversity and diversity and having our food system support other creatures as well not just us it's it's an incredibly important thing to understand our place um, within this, this, this beautiful world that we live, live in. And, and it's such a beautiful world. And, and I find it extraordinary when I go and I'm invited to go somewhere and to speak and I'm staying at a conservation environment. And the first thing I find in the room that I'm staying in is a spray for insects and especially mosquitoes. Or something like that. it's my absolute pet hate and I arrive and there's this spray doom and and I, I go to the people and I say uh, you've just invited me to come and speak what is this in my room and um, you find that and it's such a blind spot with people you say do you realize that insects are dying and you want me to 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 have this in my room and so we've got to really 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 look at everything that we do. Um, our footprint is, is extraordinarily big for, for one species. And um, the, the planet cannot sustain um, our current trajectory. And we have to, we have to change. And it's, it's wonderful to hear that you, you've encountered lots of people who, who have um, heard your message and, and are changing. Um, Karen and I work in, in, in incredibly remote parts of South Africa in these reserves. So we don't necessarily encounter too much of our own species, which I think is probably a good thing. Um, we spend a lot of time with wild animals, and it's it's wonderful to see um, that we're the visitors in that environment, and we're very, very conscious of being the outsiders in that environment. And so when we visit that environment, we make sure that we behave appropriately and that we, we set a good example of our species. Um, that's very, very crucial to our study. We do not impose um, on, on the wildlife around us, and we're very respectful of it because we are the outsiders ultimately in these vast reserves. And it's actually great to feel that way because then you come back and you try and tell our species that we really 
you're missing so much if you don't connect with nature and you're missing just this beautiful language of interconnectedness. And if we're exploiting it all the time, then we're the ones that are missing out. It's an incredibly beautiful world out there. And we, we do, we are a part of it, but we shouldn't try and break it. And yeah, and stop taking start giving more than we take as opposed to taking more than we give. And that was what was moving to me about when I met you. Um, I'd already been becoming conscious that as a beekeeper, I was becoming part of the problem in a small city like San Francisco. There's not much forage here and we have a rich biodiversity as well. So it was really when I met you and we started talking like this that I thought, I've got to do the right thing and reduce, reduce beehives. So that's what I've done. I've reduced by half um, my beehives and have started to raise two native pollinators. And one of them is a, an amazing butterfly that lives on weeds that grow everywhere in the city. So I know there's ample food for them. And I know that that food is pretty much untouched. Um, there's no chemicals in it. It's, it's organic weeds. And so that's just brought a lot of joy to me and making me feel like I'm becoming less of a, a problem and more helpful of a solution. You've got a big preserve. I've got like a very congested city, but I feel like I can bring more biodiversity in and support the biodiversity here uh, by focusing on organic, organic forage, which for me is trees. I don't have meadows in this city. I only have trees. South Africa has incredible um, diversity in terms of landscape. So we go from deserts to to deserts to um, to unique floral kingdom, the Feinbos kingdom, um, to subtropical. So so we we are a very very diverse country, and we're of course a very big country in in um, the bottom of Africa here. And it's it's um, you know we have. We have indigenous wild honeybees, and they are, um, at the moment, in this particular region, they were just at a, at a cusp, I think, um, where managed bees could become such a huge threat to their survival. And so, you know, working closely with, with um, conservation authorities in making sure that they are definitely protected but it means we have to engage with the neighbors which are often industrial farms and so that is a lot of education and so um, one has to go and speak to people a lot and try and um, do things differently but certainly if one had flowering trees as borders uh, um, around big farms and flowering at different times, so there's that there's always forage beside it. There are so many ways and solutions to assisting um, bees, uh, managed bees, in terms of their health and well, and and that needs to be looked at very closely. You must have amazing trees. I would love to see more um, trees of <laughs> your pictures with pollinators in them. That's so cool to me. That's like candy. <laughs> Well, I am so glad I met you. I just think you're you're both remarkable. You and Karen are just remarkable people, and I'm so glad that you're um, you're there and protecting. And I know the planet is really grateful for you as well. And I thank you for speaking with me today. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? Yes, um, I wanted to say thank you very much, Terry, for, for giving us the opportunity 
um, or me in particular, to speak about um, bee conservation because I, I really truly think that it's not understood. Um, bee conservation is not putting bees in boxes and saving. You don't save bees by putting them in boxes. You uh, Bees should always be, in, in if they're indigenous honeybees, should always be in their wild homes of their choice and they should be protected there. So many European countries have actually um, allowed the industrial um, bee associations to have the voice of their honeybees, which means conservation authorities have lost their ability to, to safeguard honeybees in the wild. And that's why honeybee populations have crashed in Europe and they've lost their wild honeybees they only have a mishmash of genetically modified bees in a lot of places. And um, there is a big scramble now in Europe to rewild bees um, into wild spaces. That would never have happened if they hadn't allowed um, industry to have the narrative of bees. Conservation should always have the narrative of bees in countries where honeybees are indigenous. So thank you very much for giving me the opportunity to speak from that conservation platform and to to be able to have the wild voice uh, of honeybees spoken about because in our country, wild honeybees thrive and they need to be protected in, in, their, in that space that they choose to live in. And basically, if we don't take care of them, we're not going to thrive. So thanks, Terry. Thanks for your platforms and thanks for all your support of what we do. We truly appreciate it. I'm Terry Oxford, and this is Pollinators and Power. Thanks for listening.